Canucks Central Wednesday, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Going to get into a lot on the program. Kevin Woodley going to join us. Also Joe Smith covering the Tampa Bay Lightning for The Athletic. And it's a Wednesday. So it's an overrated or underrated Wednesday and Sat, you got the masses angry by putting craft beer to the test for overrated or underrated. Well, you know, sometimes the masses need to be prodded to find the right answer about this. See, I have questions about craft beer because I love beer. As you know, mm-hmm. Dan, I can't really handle more than one or two beer at a time anymore. I'm, I'm fine with vodka, anything else and all that sort of stuff. That's fine. Beer and me don't really agree much anymore. So I was very curious because I do enjoy the beer. I just can't try too many when I'm out. Uh, So we will uh, discuss that amongst other things during overrated or underrated. You can still get in some uh, topic suggestions. We'll try to get to as many as we can in the final segment of the show. You know how it goes, overrated or underrated. Uh, Give us a topic like craft beer. Is it overrated or underrated? And we discuss on the program. I uh, I do want to uh, apologize to the listenership already, though. Uh-oh. Last week on Overrated or Underrated, we were asked if orange juice and espresso is, is overrated or underrated. Oh, right. We said right. we would try it today, but I, yes. I completely forgot. So um, we're, we're yeah. putting it off for another week. Yeah, and uh, and to be to be fair, like I, I'm I'm working from home yep. today. Um, hopefully back in studio tomorrow. But I have to work from home today, so that was also getting in the way, unfortunately. Um, so uh, OJ and Espresso next week, hopefully, here <laughs> on uh, on Canuck Central. Yes. Um, so we're going to get into the Battle of Alberta in, in a little bit, but do want to start on the Canucks as we are Canuck Central. And uh, you can find the interview with Scott Walker in its entirety from yesterday on uh, the podcast, Hour 2 yesterday, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, subscribe. That way you never miss any of our exclusive interviews. And, you know, Scott Walker moving on from the Canucks. Uh, it was ultimately his decision. He, as he put it to us, um, the team needed him to make a decision on his future uh, before he was ready and able to do so. So he has decided to step away from being on the Canucks bench. But there was quite a bit of really interesting things to come out of that. And we're going to get into some of the tactical things that he talked about, Sat. But I want to start with JT Miller, okay? Because Scott Walker is a big fan of of JT Miller. And not a big fan of analytics, but definitely JT Miller. Not so much analytics, but definitely a big fan of JT Miller. Here is uh, Scott Walker on uh, the Canuck centerman. I will tell you, he plays hard, and that is going to be hard for him to keep up that style of play. Um, but the guy warrants to be paid well, obviously. He's, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I guess, I don't know. I never really focused so much on his game before. Obviously, you knew he was a good player. I didn't realize how good and how old school, hard skill he has. Like, he is going to throw up any kind of game he's going to play at you throw a hard pass in the feed he's picking it up you throw a pass right on his tape it's in the net you want like 
on a, on the half wall on the power play. I don't know if I've ever seen a better player because you give him room, he's going to put it in the net with his own shot. You take away the top, he finds the, the you know Bull Horvat in, in the bumper. He, you know, take that away, he's finding Quinn up top, the seam down. Like he's as good as I've seen. Uh, uh, but not just that, the hard games, when he comes every single day, he's playing 25 minutes, the hardest position. I mean, the closest guy, and I, I think this guy might have nipped him a little bit been better, but he very similar style game to uh, uh, Rod Brindamore. You know, a centerman who plays that many minutes that hard is is, is grueling. It's, and I don't know. I don't know if he can play till he's 38 and keep the same production, or he can't, That's but that's – not my, you know, my problem, but I'm saying he's a good player. He's, I mean, you'd want him on your team. I just don't know for how long you can play that. Like, he's a warrior. I mean, he was, I, I'm not sure there wasn't a game after the day we got there where he wasn't limping into the arena. So there is uh, Scott Walker here on uh, Canuck Central yesterday uh, comparing J.T. Miller to... Rod Brindamore sat. Rod the Bod. Now, yeah. one thing Rod Brindamore, and you know, by virtue of his nickname, did really well was take care of himself. Like mm-hmm. he had a point per game season. He had 82 points in 78 games when he was 36 years old, turning 37 that summer. Pretty good. And after that, he's still pretty good. I mean, he had two 51 point seasons after that, age 37, 38. But as we talked about yesterday, especially with the advances in training and medicine and nutrition, us knowing a lot more about it, it simply comes down to how dedicated are you as an athlete to take care of yourself? And that's the biggest thing you have to determine as an organization when you decide to bet on a player into his 30s. Obviously, you need some luck with injuries and all those sort of things, but how willing is he to work? So I think that's the biggest question of Rod Brindamore, as you know, took well, took really good care of himself. But that's still pretty heady praise. He said maybe Rod Brindamore is a bit better than JT Miller. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, Rod, uh, you know, Rod, Rod was one hell of a player and a great two-way player. Mm-hmm. Um, Two-time Selkie winner. Yep. And look, I, I think JT, I think the world of JT, but... Uh, Honestly, I, I think the sample is just too small at center, it, right? Like to really make that assessment that he could be really strong because there was part of me that felt it got better towards the end of the season, his his two-way play and um, just his positioning and different sorts of things that you're maybe not used to when you're not playing the position constantly. But I thought he got better over the course of the end of the season in some of those areas defensively, can he continue that into next year? Well, you don't really have the time to allow yourself to figure that question out, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you either got to pay him now or make the move, as Jim Rutherford told us here on the show a couple of weeks ago. Well, and that's what it ultimately comes down to. But as far as the impact goes, that's how Scott Walker saw him. That's very much the way Bruce Boudreaux sees him. Patrick Alvine said very clearly that they don't have to pay any superstars this offseason. So that means he doesn't believe JT Miller is a bona fide superstar. But how much do you value him as a player? That's what it ultimately comes down to. And we don't need to go over the money stuff again, really, because you know we all kind of know where it's at and what could happen, and we'll find out ultimately. But does somebody in the front office believe in JT Miller the way Boudreaux and Scott Walker do? 
and how much of an argument can those can that individual make? And are there multiple individuals? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like, I don't know if they're willing to pay that money. I don't think they are. But is there somebody there that can convince them that they should be doing it? There's um, that that's an interesting part of the an interesting layer of the conversation, but. The front office clearly values JT Miller and some of the things that he does even beyond the ice. And you could hear it uh, with Scott, the way that uh, JT was a leader for the team. And when he talked about who the stars are of the roster, he mentioned Demko, Hughes, and Miller. Did not said uh, Elias Pettersson and Bo Horvat were complimentary pieces. That is quite the big praise. I think management, though would have to view it a different way in that we have to look at it as Pedersen will be our superstar because you just can't realistically expect JT Miller to really continue this level of play into his early and mid thirties. That's, you know, it's, it's foolhardy to do, to do something like that. Can he be 80 to 90% of what he was last year? Potentially, but that's, not a guy that is dragging you uh, through a long Stanley Cup playoff run. It's well, so let, it's a so big let me ask you, core piece. Oh, sorry. Well, let me ask you this then: what what age do you think he stops producing at a high level? Nazem Kadri is essentially 33, 32 years old. He's going to mm-hmm. be thirty two when next season begins. You saw the year he had. What's the age? What's the cutoff? Do you think for JT? I think around you know thirty thirty four. Is okay. when you start to see him maybe go 50% of what he's at right now or 60% of what he's at right now. So let's pose a hypothetical. So that's four years down the road, and let's say he signs a seven-year contract. And let's say that contract, just for argument's sake here, is $9 million per season. Mm-hmm. So for those four years, you feel good. He's going to be worth that $9 million. Those final three years, he's not going to be worth a $9 million, but what is he going to be, do you think? Is he a is he a maybe slightly below point per game guy? Is he a fifty point guy? Well, the problem like, is I think this think was this was JT Miller's career year. I don't think you get this year again out of him. So yes, I mean I, I don't necessarily think that's untrue. However, is he gonna? Is there a big difference between him having another thirty goal season and like a ninety point season and a ninety nine point season in a year where scoring was up a little bit? Yeah. Like it's it's a career year, but that drop off by a few points when maybe nor scoring normalizes. Is it going to be so big that you look and say, man, he went from 99 points to 69 points? Like, is it going to be that big of a drop-off? It might not be that big of a drop-off, but I could see him getting more towards the 75 to 80-point range. Now, the other thing you factor in, and listen, I'm, I'm just playing, making the argument here. We're doing the, the, There's somebody in the room that's going to make the argument yeah. for JT, and I'm going to be that guy for the moment, Zach's for this exercise. Yeah. You're, you're, I'm that guy. I'm that watching. guy, pal. I'm that guy, pal. <laughs> All right, so... Right now, so let's say in four years, the cap goes up as well. Do you feel okay if your team is a contender? You have JT Miller leadership, playing on the wing, being a bit of a force, being good on the power play, getting you 60 points at $9 million, and you're a contending team, and he has all the intangibles and steps up for you in the postseason. Is that the worst thing to have when he's 36? I think that's tough. It's, it's not the worst thing to have. But, Let's say the cap's like $95 million at that point. Right. Yeah, I guess if we're talking six years down the line and it's 2028, there's flying cars, uh, most cars drive themselves, uh, I could, you know, yeah, 
JT Miller can probably still be productive, maybe more of a $5 million player than a $9 million player then, but that's still something that's it's hard to build around, Sat, when you have that, that kind of an anchor on your team. Canucks yeah. are going to have to find succession plans beyond JT Miller. Like that's that that's the hard part in all of this. Is it's not just about the player alone. It's it's what else they have here. Can JT Miller be a five to six million dollar player when he's 35, 36 years old? Probably. Like I think that much of him. I love the drive. I love the um, the the leadership he brings to this roster and the you know not giving a bleep type of mentality he has at times that not a lot of other players on this team do. He does provide an element on that front than other guys do, but it's just uh, I'm too much of a skeptic on on betting on players into their mid-30s that mm-hmm. the Canucks are going to be able to build a good enough team around a $9 million player not living up to that kind of a contract. Yeah, well, I mean, and... Even when you hear what Scott Walker said himself, I mean, he he said, like, it's not my, like, I'm not the one making that decision. But as far as him today, this is how good of a player he is. But you could tell, like, he said, he's like, yeah, you know, at the same time, I'm not sure that how that ages. That's the question. Nobody, nobody disputes how good JT Miller is. You know, nobody disputes how, how important he is. But if you even ask Bruce Boudreaux, there's always, always a line that the organization has to think about where it doesn't make sense anymore. And that's ultimately where they're going to have to make their biggest decision. Where is that point where we think this doesn't make sense for us anymore? Yeah. And I wonder if if JT has made up his mind that he wants at least sixty million, for instance. Let's just say for like you know he wants at the very least eight million, and he's not even like for you to even be able to get in the door and have a conversation. Let's say he wants eight, and he wants six, seven years. Well, that's very already probably past the point of what you can do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, this the thing about this is, and look, one of the reasons I, I don't like this is because it's it, it tears down what is a very good player. But was JT Miller just the best player on a on a poor hockey team? Well, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's fair because he's really good on the power play. He's always been really good on the power play. He's been an elite performer on the power play. Even when he played in Tampa, his power play numbers were really impressive given the ice time that he's had. Scott Walker called him one of the best half-wall players he's ever seen. And that's, I don't, I mean, listen, I'm not going to dispute with what Scott Walker said about him, you know, but I'm not going to sit here and and say he's the best I've ever seen or whatever. But hey, that's a point from a guy who played in the NHL, coached in the NHL, obviously, and has been a scout in the NHL. Do the coaches watch a lot? Do the coaches on the Canucks have a, well, look, JT Miller won them a lot of games. So (laughs) it's, you know, do they have an inflated opinion of the player where the management group has to take a more balanced approach to this type of a of a negotiation? Like well, JT obviously. Miller is a great player, but is he the superstar we saw this year? That's ultimately what this comes down to and it, I think it's it's too hard to bet on that uh, on a career year of a 29-year-old player. Well, and the other question too is like if if you're letting if if you're looking at JT Miller and you're saying okay he's going to be worth 
six million in six years, for instance, or five years, for instance. That's how you can talk yourself into it. Like, like, for, like, look at like. I like this text that Jeffro had. He says, "I heard you guys say before that Rutherford will give you hints as to what he's thinking." At the presser, he said regarding Miller, "When signing someone at Miller's age, it depends on what he's going to give you the last three years as opposed to the first three. It leads me to believe they will offer Miller a six-year deal at an AAV they see fit, and that will be it. Take it or don't." That's what Jeffro says, and I think that's ultimately true. There's a number they're going to have an offer. They'll make it, and if he says no, that's going to be it. Because to your point. Bruce isn't going to be here in five years. Mm-hmm. If things go well, Bruce is here for three or four more years maximum. And that's if things go well. Yeah. So he's obviously he's down with whoever gets signed because he's not going to be here when those when those contracts are going to be onerous. So coaches are, will always want somebody now because that's what they worry about. Management has to worry about long term with whatever is going on there. But I do think with JT, like there's a number that makes sense and I think they'd be okay with going there. It all comes down to what's the, what's the minimum number JT? JT will accept and has that risen from where we were say even two months ago as it's, uh, it's tough you know we talked about the market a little bit yesterday Fiala potentially asking for eight million Kadri may not get as much term but he's probably going to be around seven or eight million dollars as well wherever he signs um it's 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 going to be tough and that's why it's going to be so difficult but I think it's um it's one of those things, like very uh, instructive to hear what the Canucks coaches of last season felt about JT Miller. We even remember Bruce Boudreaux calling Miller the unknown superstar for what he brought to the team. And, you know, Walker really went into deeper detail about all of the things that JT Miller brought to the roster. You know, it's he's an incredible player. Um, but it's it's just a crossroads that is a very difficult conundrum that the Canucks have to figure out. And ultimately, I still believe that like if this team is going to reach the levels they hope they will reach, it's going to depend on Elias Pettersson taking that step and Quinn Hughes being the top five defenseman that we think he is to go along with Thatcher Demko being one of the best goalies in the league. Ultimately, that's, I think, the the three cornerstones you need to build around and you need to hit in order for this whole situation in Vancouver to work out. And that's not to devalue JT Miller in any way. I think that's just where this has to go because Pedersen's ceiling, as one of our texters put it, his two-way value can be immense. And that's that's something we talk about all the time here on the show. Well, I'm, I mean, ultimately, that's where the biggest improvement has to come from. The other one comes down to how can your team play a lot better overall, and what else can you do? I mean, even if JT Miller is here or not, there are ways this team has to improve and can improve. And the question is, how much of an emphasis is going to be on how to get out of their own zone? Like, is that actually a big emphasis, or is that just something that you know they said in the press conference as mm-hmm. far as a, a slight critique they had that they want to see change through training camp and into next season, but they're not even, you know, all about, hey, change the structure significantly. So that's my, my other question here is, if you're not bringing JT back, how are you making your team better? And how much can you pay, play better as a team if he's not here? It's, uh, it's a fascinating question. I, I, I did want to get to this. Like, how, on that note, like, how do you play? Uh, we did talk to Walker about the zone exits and how can the club improve that? 
Is it something you can do and instill as a coaching staff, or does it come down to personnel being able to execute those things? Here is uh, Scott Walker on uh, how the Canucks can improve zone exits. Yeah, well, obviously, when you're playing a fast-paced game and trying to get quick ups, you're going to maybe turn over a few more pucks, or pucks aren't going to be perfect every time. But I would take that because when you do, even when you get it up quick, you're beating two or three of their guys. Even if it's a turnover, you're still putting in one-on-one or or races to pucks. Whereas if you want to control breakout and they got five guys above the puck, and then you're not going to go through five guys, but you're going in control. I'm not sure I would want that. There is uh, there is Scott Walker on some of the uh, Canucks zone exits. Sat. Yeah, that that was interesting. And one of the things that you know I've been wondering because it's so easy for us to say do something different and do some do something like this. And that's and I think it's fine. But different doesn't mean better results because what are you sacrificing when you're trying to do something different? Sometimes and one of the things that we critique the previous coaching staff for was they tried to cover up the things that they didn't do well so much they forgot what they did well and that's where it got away from them so when we're talking about how you exit out of your own zone how much of that push and playing quick and being able to pressure teams and creating chances and getting on the forecheck do you potentially miss if you're looking for a cleaner breakout do you play slower because of that do you miss some chances because of that are you better off just getting it out, out as quickly as possible and trying to win those 50-50s? And I think that's a that's an interesting question because you also have to have the players that are able to quickly hit somebody in transition to get out of your own zone cleanly. And that goes back to what Bruce mentioned a while back when he was asked about it. And he said, well, ultimately, I look at the best teams in the league at, at getting zone exits, and they have the best defensemen. That's kind of <laughs> how it works. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it as well. So as much as you want to change your system, at the same time, you also have to be careful that you don't take away from what you do well because you're trying to be something different. Uh, you know, I wonder, just watching Edmonton lately, um, yes, Mike Smith was the GOAT when he had the turnover against the LA Kings, but look at how they break out sometimes, right? It's just uh, Smith gets a quick pass to the defenseman, defenseman goes to the streaking centerman through the middle of the ice, and a couple passes, they are out of the zone. The Canucks, like just thinking back to it, Sat, uh, if it wasn't Quinn Hughes with the puck and I guess at times Oliver ekman Larson, sometimes they, you know, just think themselves into a turnstile and end up making so many bad decisions. The puck slows down and it becomes a turnover in their own end. Whereas when they started with the quick ups and, and the high flips, it just kind of took thinking out of it mm-hmm. for some of the players and looking for the right pass. Uh, whereas if if you're that half a beat too slow, all of a sudden uh, the opposing checker is on you and the puck is uh, back in the other team's possession. And that, that crippled the Canucks whenever they tried to break out of their own zone consistently outside of the Quinn Hughes pair. Now, one of the comparisons that has kind of been made is a Carolina Hurricanes, and that's a team that obviously is playing the Rangers right now in the second round, and as much as the Rangers have made this tough, they still have a chance to end up in the conference final, and maybe they do, and all that sort of stuff, and being a Final Four team tells you how good they are. But at the same time, there are some issues I have with how Carolina doesn't have success in the postseason despite having a territorial advantage. And I kind of wonder just overall, if you don't have the defenseman or the team to be able to create more quality scoring chances in the postseason, then does it ultimately come down to just having better personnel from your back end and having forwards that are just better goal scorers? 
Because as much as you're able to hunt pucks and you're able to create zone time and create scoring chances, if you're playing a hot goalie at Shesterkin and the Rangers, for the most part, are able to keep things on the outside and not let you get inside too much, and you don't have a ton of high-end goal scorers outside of Aho and Svechnikov, does that catch up with you at some point? And, and I just wonder, as much as you want to play a certain style... What is the ultimate ceiling you're looking to get? And as much as you're talking about stylistically playing differently, it comes down to what personnel you have. So if you really want to be a team that cleanly exits the zone and is able to gain offensive zone time really easily, you simply have to improve the defense. That doesn't mean the defense is bad. It just means it's not at the same level as the absolute elite teams that are going to win Stanley Cups. I think there's a certain level that can be coached into the team, though, You know, as, as Rutherford put it to us. Uh, he, he used the example of the L.A. Kings. Like, why couldn't the Canucks ever break out well of their own zone when Alex Edler was on the Canucks? You know, it, yes, it's not just on Edler to break the puck out on his own, but, you know, it just, uh, L.A. got to a point, and they had a coach in there for a few years that figured out and really hammered at home some of the things that they need to do to have success. And they brought it up with a lot of their young players, and it's worked. Canucks had Travis Green, yes, but as we've talked about, you know, Green was changing things every year, bringing in new wrinkles, and every year was a little bit of a different style as to how they wanted to play. And after a while, you start noticing all of the, um, you know, warts on your team rather than focusing on what they're good at, as we've mentioned so often. And I think that's that can kind of get in the way sometimes. How much can you coach up this roster, I think, is the question mark, especially with the way that it's, uh, it's currently constructed. A lot of good reaction on our Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll get more into the uh, Battle of Alberta. Kevin Woodley is going to join us as well as uh, we get his take on what's up with Jacob Markstrom right now. Not been great for the ex-Canucks goaltender. That's coming up next on Canucks Central. Canuck Central, a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. I was uh, quickly corrected last night, Sat, when I um, mm. tweeted out that Mike Smith has gone full Dan Cluche. Um, it turns out, though, the Oilers won the game. So Yes. That's, uh, yeah. That analogy does not work then. Sorry. No, it does I apologize. Not. It doesn't. Not only did the Canucks lose that game, they also went on to lose the series, oh. which um, adds to the heartbreak. And we kind of wondered if he, you know, at the time when it happened, it's like, okay, are are the Canucks going to recover from this? Like, is this even possible to recover from? And everybody kind of thought at the time that this is probably going to sink them, and that's exactly what happened. And when we watched that happen to Mike Smith last night, my initial reaction was, wow, uh, this should be the end of this game. The Edmonton should lose this game, but they still have Connor McDavid. But amazingly enough, it wasn't because of McDavid that they won. No, McDavid, uh, you know, was, was pretty quiet, only had two points. <laughs> only two points. <laughs> I still lost the bet over at playnow.com. Uh, <laughs> you know, under, under one and a half points for Connor McDavid was plus money. And, uh, man, that's a bad beat right there. He gets an assist on the empty netter for Evander Kane. But uh, that's uh, I'll, I'll digress there. Um, the Oilers just played a like first period. 
Uh, Calgary was the better team, but the Oilers were up 3 nothing. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of been the story here. The Oilers are converting their chances. Flames are still giving up too many big ones, right? Like, of course, the Markstrom gaff was gross in the opening minute of the game. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, even thinking about Kane's first goal and, like, what is Zadorov doing? <laughs> He's just making a hero play, supermanning across the defensive zone after he lost his coverage. It's just, you know, that that pair has just been an absolute disaster for the Flames in this series. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we heard that Tanev was going to play, my initial reaction was, this is how desperate they are. That's how bad the defense is, that they feel like a guy that should have offseason surgery, essentially, and shouldn't be playing is a better option than what they have. It's uh, not great. And uh, Tanev, a warrior, playing uh, about 20 minutes. With one arm. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. He is our goalie guru. Uh, in Goal Magazine, NHL.com. It is Kevin Woodley. Uh, what did you make of the Rasmus Anderson 130-foot snipe last night? Yeah, I, uh, I thought for sure I was getting a call from Randeep Janda to say that <laughs> I been... Oh, we lost Woodley. Man. At least we can. At least it was early on. So we get a, There we go. Oh, I think I think we lost you there for a second. You mentioned Randeep Janda, and uh, and you cut out. I think as soon as all right, we're gonna have to reconnect with uh, Kevin Woodley here. A um, little bit of a poor phone connection there for Woodley, but uh, the 132 foot snipe from Rasmus Anderson. We just we so rarely see those types of goals. Usually, it's like bouncing, and it takes like a weird kind of bounce in a 45-degree angle right in front of the goalie, and that's how it ends up in. This was just like a seeing-eye single all the way through. <laughs> and, I love his reaction. Yes. He, he he lost track of the puck, and he even admitted to it after the game. He's like, this is the first time ever that I completely lost. I didn't know where the puck was. But his reaction was to blame somebody. He's like, uh, who, where, but whose fault is that? What happened? I blame the ugly oiler jerseys, okay? Well, I mean, you know what happened? Kyler Yamamoto kind of ducks when the, when Rasmus Anderson shoots the puck, and it kind of goes over his... And Yamamoto's small to begin with, but he kind of ducks and the puck goes over him, and I think that's kind of... You're right. Like, the blue jerseys are kind of, like, stacked. Like, watching the replay, you kind of see some blue jerseys stacked on top yeah. of each other, and Yamamoto ducks and the puck goes over him, and they're dark jerseys. I mean, he, was, he didn't know where the puck was, but he totally lost track of it, but I love this reaction trying to blame someone. <laughs> uh, let's, get, uh, let's get Kevin Woodley back. My, my theory is that uh, he lost the puck in the jerseys, the ugly oiler jerseys. Do you, do, you, uh, do you think that's possible? All right, Woodley's on a poor connection today. Oh, there we go. I think we got him back. No? Maybe not. I don't think we'd, we, we've got him. Uh, all right. We'll try to get that sorted with uh, with Kevin Woodley. Last it's week, only twenty twenty two. Last week was Edmonton. This week, it's uh, it's it's something else. Do you think the Flames are done here? Sat down three one here in the series. Uh, they've played well at five on five, but Markstrom's got an eight fifty save percentage right now. And until they figure that out, I just I. I don't see how they come back in this series. There's no way you can win a series. You can win three games in a row unless you start getting some saves. 100%. But even if he plays well, is he stopping McDavid? Can you stop McDavid three games in a row? And that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And even if I, I can see them having a great game five, winning, and maybe they go away winning. They get to Mike Smith, and it's like a 5-6-2 you know, winner or something like that. 
But ultimately, McDavid's going to win one of those next three games remaining. So I just don't see it for Calgary. It's it's tough, man. And you may as well put out the the missing persons call for Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk, especially Kachuk. Yeah, he had the hat trick in game one. But the guys had like what two good games here in the in the playoffs, and they've played now eleven. That's that's not good enough for a guy that's uh, looking to get you know probably double digit salary as early as this off season if he doesn't just take his qualifying offer of nine million bucks. He's supposed to be a playoff type player, but I don't know, man. There's nights where I just don't even notice Matthew Kachuk at all. For a guy who should be an impact guy, he's way too quiet too often. And that's something that we alluded to the other day when talking about Calgary. He's going to have to, especially when you're facing a team with Connor McDavid, you got to bring your 100% every single game. There has to be an edge somewhere for your roster, and your higher-end guys have to come through. And this is where Matthew Kachuk should be coming through in the postseason. I believe we do have Kevin Woodley back. Third time's the charm. Are you still in Edmonton? What's going on? No, 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 no. I'm actually back in Vancouver. We've got to have a little word with uh, TELUS and uh, the inability of their uh, cell phone signal to work in half, <laughs> half of my neighborhood, it seems. So uh, I'll be having a chat with him later. Sorry about that. Actually, I think what it is is after a night of bad goaltending, nothing works. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So what do you think happened on the on the Smith play there? Is it just uh, he lost the, the puck in, in those awful Oiler jerseys, as, as I think? I don't think they're awful, like I said. Oh, but, come um, on. Listen, I, I don't think he ever had it because I don't think yeah. he was looking at it when it was when it was uh, shot. And I think if you look at the end, there's a view from behind the Calgary end, behind Rasmus Anderson. And, and I know you shouldn't do this, but I know we all do it. Like the play gets to the other end and you take a break. And mm-hmm. you put your arms down on your pads and maybe you put your head down for a sec. And that view, his head was up. But I don't think, like, if you, if you sort of watch it from that end, he's not watching the puck. I don't think he sees the turnover, and I'm pretty confident in saying he doesn't see the shot. And then you add in the fact that it does seem to disappear into those jerseys and come back in, and I think that's just a recipe for didn't see the release, never saw it on its way, and frankly probably never saw it till it was past him and in the net. Uh, and he did his little wave at the hockey gods like, what the hell just happened? I mean, usually, though, in a game where you're up 3 nothing and that's the tying goal, that's usually the back-breaking goal. That was my biggest surprise in that game, to be honest, Kevin, because usually that's when a game turns and you don't win that game. The fact they won was my biggest surprise. Yeah, it's kind of a credit to them, right, as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess credit to Smitty, too, not that he was tested a lot after that, that they didn't just implode. Um, you know, in, in some ways after Markstrom gives up that first goal, like I don't think Calgary was bad in the first period, um, but it kind of felt inevitable as, as the goals kept piling up on them and, you know, some tough breaks in there, but it just kind of felt like that, that initial gaff might be enough to sort of turn that game and they never recover. And you felt the same way after, you know, that puck goes in from the other zone, like how are they going to recover from that? Like, how do you bounce back? And I think it's a real credit to the mental toughness of, sort of everybody on that roster probably says something uh, about the belief uh, that uh, Jay Woodcroft has instilled in the group that they didn't just completely fold their tents. I mean, they were still up in the series. Um, could have lost that game, gone, gone, you know, gone back to Calgary two, two. And I just, I don't, I think a lot of teams would have folded in that instance. And maybe they showed us something by not folding 
and in the way they recovered from that, um, you know, that speaks to more than just their ability to skate and shoot and all those things that, you know, we talk about mental toughness of goaltenders and how you can never see inside their heads. So you look at signposts along the way, how do they handle certain situations? And I think that might've been one for the Edmonton Oilers as a group in terms of how they responded to that and didn't fall apart afterwards. Cause certainly seen other teams do it in the past. Calgary's biggest question mark is uh, what's going on with Jacob Markstrom. Uh, what are you seeing right now? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to hear after the series um, that there's there's something there injury-wise. Uh, there's been a little bit of buzz in the goaltending community, goaltending coach community at the National Hockey League level about you know how healthy he is. Uh, nothing verified or well-sourced, but certainly that talk is there. His movements don't look as crisp. He's missing spots on his post that he doesn't. I'm not used to seeing him miss. Like There are some changes in his game since he left here. Um, you know, that you know, like he's... They've tried to quiet him down by taking a lot of those quick shuffles out, uh, have him a little more into his set save stance earlier, uh, especially off the rush. And there are elements in that that become targetable. Like uh, I talked about going into the series, wouldn't be surprised to see them from low high plays and angles shoot low just over the pad on the far side, You know, trying to exploit the lack of rotation that comes with the way he retreats now versus how he did there. And, like there's give and take in everything and certainly changing the way he retreats, um, you know, made him a little, a little quieter in the net, a little less busy. Um, but the, the give is that he loses angle on those retreats. And, you know, there's certainly times in the series where I think they've exploited that, uh, where they clearly looks to me like they're targeting and, and successfully, especially in the first game. Uh, and then the Duncan Keith goal in game in game two. Um, and so there's a little bit of that. But when you see him missing his spots on the post and, and sort of flailing and pushing off the post and sort of lunging at pucks, um, you know, to me, that makes me wonder, you know, if there isn't something going on. Because, yeah, for all the changes he has made, I don't think he's lost that precision in his game. And some of that precision in his movement is uh, not evident right now. And that sort of starts to manifest itself in other areas. Like they're going after the glove pretty clearly. Uh, he's pulling off and turning on glove side high pucks, uh, especially again, like I thought he got better last night, but there was an element of that in the first three games where he's kind of pulling that shoulder up and away on that side rather than closing into those shots. And sometimes that starts with your footwork. That starts with not being set. That starts with not being square. That starts with not being high in your thighs and maintaining that elevation that gives you access to controlled safe movements elsewhere. And, you know, again, to me, that all starts with movement, and I and I wouldn't be surprised. A because we know Jacob Markstrom. Like, you look back to the bubble year in 2020, and he made it through what, like, four games against Vegas before he finally pulled the shoot, and we had bubble Demko. You know, but he got hurt early when they went to Edmonton. Uh, actually, at the practice facility because um, the NHL didn't bother to drill proper pegs into the practice facility the teams were using during the Edmonton bubble. So he pushed off a post in an early practice. And rather than the net holding and supporting that push, the net came off its moorings and he slipped out and that's where the injury was sustained. But he played and played well through a couple of rounds through that injury. So his MO is to play until the wheels come off. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if you're seeing a little bit of that right now in Jacob Markstrom's game. 
Well, and he started 63 games this season. Anytime he's played a lot of games, he has a hard time staying healthy once the season goes on. That's always been the big question with him. Now, uh, moving our sights to maybe the most dominant goalie we've seen in a long time, Andre Vasilevsky. And Dan and I have been talking about this on the show, uh, about where he already ranks amongst the all-time greats. Is it fair to say that his peak is as good as anybody of all time, what we're seeing right now? Yeah, you know, and the interesting thing to me, Sad, is, and I, and again, I've said this before, like, you got to get to this guy early in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Easier said than done because of the team around him. Like, he wasn't very good in the first round, guys. Like, we're putting him on, everybody's putting him on the Mount Rushmore of goaltending after sweeping the Panthers, and, and don't get me wrong, he was exceptional in the second round. He was brilliant in the Game 4 elimination game. He tends to rise to those moments. Um, to me, if you're Toronto, it was the wasted opportunities earlier in that series to maybe – um, you know, drive another nail into the coffin and allow him to extend it. Because we've seen it for a few years here where he's not at his best to start the playoffs, and then he just keeps getting better as they go on. And, um, yeah, I don't really have an explanation for it, but it's not just this year. Uh, and, and for all the statues we're building of him now, like, like he was worse than Jack Campbell statistically in the first round. Out of 20, I think it was 27, 28 goalies that got into action in the first round, even after sort of correcting things and being better over to, you know, like late in game six and in game seven of that series, you know, he was 21st or 22nd in adjusted save percentage. He was underperforming the environment, the shot quality environment around him. And yet he gets to game seven and then to the second round. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, why isn't this guy winning the Vezina every year? Like we see that ceiling and I agree with you. His ceiling is as high as anyone. The only ones in the league that I think can even touch it, you know, like, like, you know, Markstrom when he's at his best, Demko when he's at his best, Shesterkin at his best, they're in that conversation. Um, but the first round of playoffs aside, it's been his ability to stay near that ceiling and play at a high level consistently over the past four years that has him deservingly in that conversation and makes it easy to quickly ignore the first round because of the body of work that he's turned in you know, outside of that for the last number of years. Um, I have no problem putting him in that conversation at this point of his career. Uh, I still think as much as Shesterkin pushed uh, for that title, uh, I still call him the best goalie in the world because of his ability to do it year over year. And he kind of proved it again in the second round this year, just when we were ready to doubt him after the first round, uh, he transforms back into, you know, the Andre Vasilevsky that is worthy of that status and, and you know, start to chisel chisel that uh chisel that mug into into the um into the mount rushmore of goaltending already he's already got 57 playoff wins uh he's not even 28 yet though he will be soon uh con Smythe already a couple of uh cup wins you know could be in the uh, greatest of all time conversation if the Tampa Bay Lightning continue to be this good uh Billy Huso uh, I know you know he had an incredible regular season it's been talked about a lot as a as a prime target for goalie needy teams and unrestricted free agency. Has anything that's happened here in these playoffs maybe raised a red flag on on Billy Huso for you? Um, I don't know, red flag. Certainly, it's going to temper you know some of the talk about what kind of contract he could get this summer. I, I don't yeah. think you know. I, I think there was already such a small body of work that that was going to be a conversation anyways, and it's going to be maybe a more prominent one now. Um, because of, and, and when I say playoffs, guys, actually, I just mean the last couple of games against Colorado. Because, frankly, I know he lost the job in the first round against Minnesota, 
But as, as I said earlier, like the first three games of that series, he had an 872 expected save percentage and he actually outperformed it. Um, the blues were, they were the blues like they were in the regular season. They were God awful defensively in the, to open that series against Minnesota. And then Craig Berube had a little come to Jesus moment in the locker room. And they finally got back to the defensive identity that they won a Stanley cup with like Jordan Bennington's expected save percentage was I, last I checked, you know, this would have changed as the Colorado series went on, but it was like 28 points higher through the, through even the first two games of the Colorado season or series. I, I just think they tightened up and I think Huso was sort of a victim of, much like Bennington was earlier this season of being the guy that was stuck behind that porous defense. Um, and, and I didn't, it's not like I saw his game erode. It's not like I saw him do things differently because of the moment. And that can happen. Like, you get into the playoffs, and goaltenders think, oh, i got to do more. It's the playoffs. Freddie Anderson, I had this conversation with him this year. Last year, after working with the sports psychologist that I know, was the first year he went in the playoffs thinking, I just got to play my game. Every other year. And think of how many times Freddie Anderson was in the playoffs. Every other year up until that point, he went into the postseason thinking, Oh, I got to ramp up my game. I got to do more. I got to be better because it's the playoffs. Goaltending's like golf. You can't just get up there and try harder. You can't swing harder. Doesn't really work for most people. You have to let the game come to you. And so in the first three games, I didn't see any signs of him chasing it. Billy Huso, that is. I didn't see his game change. Um, the results changed in part because of how porous they were. Then he loses the gig. Now he comes back. And I have at times in these last couple of games, especially, again, after the first goal of the other game, like I thought in the first period, it's like, hey, there's, there's Billy Huso again. Uh, narrow stance, skates underneath him, beating plays on his feet, great skater, set square all over the place. But then after the first one went in, it's like he started, you know, you wonder if that was in his head after losing the job. Oh, it's the playoffs. i got to do more. A little bit of chase, a little bit of extra movement, a little bit excited in there and, you know, it doesn't take much of that uh, for things to start getting off the rails. And obviously uh, a goal from distance quickly followed uh, that, that I don't think anybody liked. And the wheel started to come off a little bit. So big test for him tonight to see if we see the Billy Huso that we saw in the, you know, again, results aside, had no problem with his game first three against Minnesota. Loved the first period the other night. Can he get back to that and stick with it? And he need, need a little help. Because I thought as soon as St. Louis gave up that goal against Colorado, like, what happened? They started chasing. They started mm-hmm. turning pucks over much like the Blues did all season. They, they kind of reverted back to the regular season Blues. And that was the team that I thought had no chance in the playoffs because they didn't defend well enough. I'm curious which one of both we get tonight. Billy Huso of the regular season and early in the playoffs and the Blues that crank things down against Minnesota – or the Blues that were playing fire wagon hockey all season and through the first three games against Minnesota. I don't know that you can win with that Blues team. I don't know that you can win with Billy Huso, either one of them chasing things. They need to play a more structured game. He needs to just stick to his game, and they'll be fine, uh, even against Colorado. But if either of those things change, then I would suspect we're already talking about who Colorado faces in the next round by tomorrow morning. Well, and, you know, obviously the, the Blues have also completely lost your composure in this series. And, you know, when your goalie goes out, obviously there will be frustration. But to the level that they've kind of lost their way, it's costing them the series. They're down 3-1 at this point. I did want to get your thoughts. We had listeners asking us as well. That collision, Bennington and, and Kadri, what did you make of that collision? And 
the level of intent you can really judge on on a play like that. Uh, it's it's a tough one. I don't think you. Could, it's hard to judge intent. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here, Sat. There's a big part of me, and, and you worry about saying too much about intent too, because man, let's like let's take a step back here and some of the like racist rhetoric and and mm-hmm. frankly, I was about to say a word, the bull crap. Um, yeah. That has followed. Like you don't want to feed into it by saying anything negative about Kadri, because that is just absolute horse crap. No place in the game. The people that are sending that stuff on the internet need to check themselves. Like that's just absurd. That said, to go back to the play itself, the goalie union card might be stripped for saying this, but the, my first reaction, frankly, was catch that puck cleanly and don't spit that rebound into the middle and none of this matters. Hmm. Um, that's a bad rebound he spills and he puts it into an area where all of this ensues. But when I look at the play, like, you're, yeah, you're going for the puck, um, but to me the contact is Kadri behind the defenseman Rosen and he's the one that makes that contact and drives him into him. And, like, I, I don't even blame Kadri on it. I actually blame the way things have been called for the past couple of years, and I've talked about this ad nauseum. As soon as we went to reviews and we started talking about the crease only and if there's any contact from a defenseman, then that's okay. Like, I just think the point of goalie interference penalties is to prevent that type of contact. And when we started allowing goals and, and airing, I knew as soon as they went to the rule, we would lose goals. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we started to lose too many goals, they started to sort of adjust the parameters around it. And now it's to the point where you don't dissuade that type of contact enough, so you're going to see more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he went into him hard. He went into Rosen hard, and it ended up being a pileup. And the injury's a, a crappy result of it. I'm a little surprised, given the amount of contact we see with goaltenders, frankly, that we don't see more of it. Both guys landing on knees and that are in vulnerable positions in the butterfly. And again, we've seen it throughout these playoffs, too. How many times have we seen a goalie's head get picked by a guy cutting through the edge of the blue paint and making contact with the mask, which to me is one of the scarier ones because I know the type of damage that can do in terms of not necessarily concussions, but neck issues that trigger concussion-type symptoms. So, um you know, I don't even necessarily blame Kadri. I think the NHL has been, you know, tipping the scales towards this contact and type of contact and type of goaltending contact being more and more likely for the past number of years based on the way the, the goaltender interference has been interpreted and based on the use of video review. Uh, I remember goalies always used to say they get banged and the referee would tell them, don't worry, if the puck had gone in, I wouldn't have allowed it. And I always used to say back in the day, that's not the way we should be doing things. Like not, not, not judging contact with a goalie based on whether the goal should count or not. Contact with the goalie should just be a damn penalty. Protect the goalie. So maybe I get my goalie union card back now <laughs> after criticizing the, uh, the bad rebound that led to that. Hey, Woodley, you're the best. Thanks for this today. Uh, my pleasure, guys. I apologize again for the, uh, for the crappy phone reception. <laughs> this is why I keep a landline right. in my home office. But I had to pick up my daughter today from school, and uh, we got a little scrambled there. So sorry about that. All good. Uh, there is uh, Kevin Woodley, In Goal Magazine and NHL.com. Joins us every Wednesday as our goalie guru here on Canuck Central. Has takes on the position that you will not hear anywhere else. Coming up, we'll get into Tampa Bay's story and how they prepare for the Eastern Conference Final and what Joe Smith thinks of Andre Vasilevsky having to 
cover him over the last number of years. It is Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650. Hour two of Canuck Central. It is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. If you missed the opening hour of the show, uh, we went through uh, some of our interview with Scott Walker from yesterday's program, his really strong thoughts on J.T. Miller and what that potentially means uh, and how J.T. Miller will age into his 30s should the Canucks go down that road with their star centerman. Also, Kevin Woodley joined us on the struggles of Jacob Markstrom and more. Joe Smith is coming up shortly. Uh, Battle of Florida obviously done after four games. Before we get to Tampa side of things, Sad, we didn't get to it yesterday, but what the heck happened to the Florida Panthers? Uh, man, they got absolutely hand- their asses handed to them by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I know they outchanced them at times and everything like that, but... Some of it was they got goalied by the best goalie in the world yeah. right now, yep. Some of it is definitely that. But overall, though, they were the second best team in a lot of the important areas. And that's where a lot of the issues come. And I think this, the biggest issue they had against the Tampa Bay Lightning as far as strategy goes was a head coaching matchup. Andrew Brunette get absolutely outcoached by John Cooper. And we saw him kind of struggle a bit initially um, in the first round against the Capitals. And then he you know, kind of came around. They, he did a pretty good job. But, you know, I kind of wonder. I know Friedman and Merrick also talked about as much as he's he's up for the coach of the year and all that sort of stuff. There might be some tough questions about Andrew Brunette because I don't think he acquitted himself very well either. I mean, those are the moments. I think in the regular season, sometimes we can we can overstate coaching. In the playoffs, it absolutely matters. Well, the, the one thing I couldn't uh, really fathom in the final game is they're down the goal. They have a power play there in the final three minutes or so, and... You know, they didn't pull the goalie. <laughs> Go six on four. Like what are you what are you waiting for? Your season is on the line, but they didn't do it immediately, and I, I couldn't really understand how that was happening. Uh Joe Smith covering the lightning for the athletic joins us now. Joe, were you as baffled as I was that uh the Panthers didn't pull the goalie late there when they had the power play? Well, I think they did. They did maybe not right away, but they did once they established possession of the six on four, maybe not as much time as they probably wanted to or, or needed to. Um, but they also know why they're such aggressive penalty killers that, you know, as you see in the playoffs, quickly a pulled goalie can turn into like shoving that goal and it's over. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, like to your point, before I jumped in, I, I really do think that John Cooper and his staff really um, did an impressive job against the Panthers team and neutralizing them in a lot of different areas. And uh, that's why I think some of those awards should be voted on after the season is over, including the playoffs, because, and the true coaching or the true MVP of a, of a, of a season includes those times. Well, and, and, you know, obviously you're, you're right about John Cooper and that coaching staff. And the most valuable player to Tampa clearly was Andre Vasilevsky, but also just how that team plays. What does it say about their ability to play different styles? And when they see that Vasilevsky is the best goalie, they can essentially, you know, shut it down and block shots and just let him do the work. That that shows a lot of versatility and maturity from that group, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. A lot of maturity and experience shows. I mean, they, they this series 
came down to the fact that the Lightning are a talented team that knows how to win, and the Panthers were a talented team trying to figure it out. And they don't need to realize how hard you have to work, how much sacrifice you have to make uh, in those dirty areas and, and on the margin, so to speak, to win. And the Lightning kind of gave them a little bit of a lesson right there. Um, you know, whether it's attention span, the last 15 seconds of the game, game two, and the buzzer beater by the Lightning is basically kind of helped put the series away because you're not going to beat them four out of five times in a row. Um, so, um, you know, those are the important factors that happen in the playoff series. The Lightning are a team that can go, if you want to play run and gun, they can do that. If you want to go, you know, grind it out in a physical manner, they can probably do that. And, you know, they may not be the most overall talented team with the teams that they played the first two rounds as far as, like, depth goes, and they're, they're pretty darn close. But, you know, all the guts and gals they had, you know, there's a big difference when you're coming this time of year. Uh, Joe, we're just going to try and reconnect and uh, maybe get a uh, better connection on the on the phone line there. The uh, phone lines. Where is uh, where's Marconi when you need him to get an actual right. good phone line going? Eh? Maybe maybe the problem is us. You know how like in in if you keep running into the same issue like in life, you can't blame everybody else. Like you're the central person that's always in the same situation. So I yeah. don't know. Maybe we're the ones to blame today. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it, it is, you know, as much as we talk about numbers and, you know, Scott Walker yesterday telling us, I don't care for analytics. Like every time the playoffs come around, you just see how much intangibles and, and will and you know, some of those things that we say are overrated at time sat since it's a Wednesday really do, do come through in the clutch. No, I mean, 100 percent. And when I watch Tampa, when you have great goaltending and great talent, if you can just kind of revert back to, hey, let's just do our best to protect them and then let's take our opportunities. I mean, if you can revert to that in your toughest moments, that's a pretty nice get out of jail free card, isn't it? It is. Uh, let's bring back Joe Smith of The Athletic covering the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. We were just talking about the resolve of this team, especially after winning back-to-back. You'd think... Uh, maybe they, they, they let up off the gas pedal a little bit, but I, the biggest reason I think they've gotten through Toronto and then got by Florida in such uh, well a comfortable fashion going four straight, you know, they're just more willing to do the things they need to do to get the win in the end. And I think that's probably the lessons the Panthers and, and Leafs are trying to learn from. They are. I mean, the, the, the Leafs took him to the brink, right? I mean, that was as mm-hmm. close as you can get to get eliminated. Um, game six goes to overtime, and game seven was such a close game. But um, they always say they know the recipe. They know the sacrifices needed. Um, they know you've got to go beyond where you thought you'd have to go in order to, to win a championship. And the little small details became so important in this series. And like you said, like you have the best goalie in the world. As long as you don't give our team bunch of great eight chances and two-on-ones and, and rushes that they were so good at during the season, you, you take that down by a huge margin uh, of chances they're going to give up. So, you know, uh, it's the Lightning had to go through that too. I think the, the Panthers reminded me a lot of the 19 Lightning. They won the President's Trophy 62 games. They were used to scoring four or five goals a game, and when they weren't in the playoffs, they were frustrated. The Columbus just jammed them up the neutral zone. They couldn't do it. They were just so frustrated and pissed off that they got out of, get out of their heads and out of their game. And it was over. And it reminds me a lot of that group. And perhaps Florida had to learn a lesson from this one. And we 
talk about them and their success story in a couple of years. Well, and as far as what they're able to do now in the next round, and we'll see ultimately who, in the, who they end up facing, the Rangers or the Carolina Hurricanes, I mean, they were able to win uh, against Florida without Braden Point, but there hasn't been a ton of updates on his status. How likely do you think it is that he's going to be available for the conference final? It's such a hard read because they've been so, I guess, cagey about it. I mean, you know how it is with injuries at this time of year. Um, it's certainly, as much as Cooper said it was be day-to-day after game one, it doesn't felt that way. And when we asked him before game four if he was skating, and there was no update on that respect. And so if we're going to be able to be able to play in game one, I mean, game one's Monday versus game one next Thursday, it's two different things, of course. But um, it certainly hasn't felt like his return is imminent. Right, uh, and the fact that they were able to lock it down and, and play well defensively and, and play those two one three one games—that's going to be their recipe to, to winning without breaking points because he's such an engine for them. And so if they got to do a round without him, but it'd be hard for me to think, you know, without him for two more rounds, knowing how much he put so much pressure and, and, and ice time on your top guys without him there, uh, playing eleven and seven, playing Kucherov and those guys, you know. Paul's playing more minutes than anybody else, five on five up front, than, and others need to keep a future off. So, is that sustainable? Well, there's remain to be seen, but there's definitely hope that he can return to playoffs as a matter of when. What has Corey Perry brought to this team outside of, uh, you know, playoff goals, which is what he does every single year? Uh, a lot. I mean, for a guy who's, you know, what, a two year, $2 million deal, it's been such a huge bargain. I mean, the 19 goals during the regular season were kind of like icing the cake for them. They, they brought him in for these playoffs, and what struck me is this is a veteran leadership group of Stamkos's, Headbins, McDonough's, Kalorns, but within like three or four games, they put an A on the sweater of Corey Perry. And it kind of said a lot the respect that they have for him. He's not a big rah-rah guy or a big speech guy, but he says something subtly on the bench or in the room, it, it makes sense. It's no BS, no fluff, and it makes a difference. So he's just one of those guys that people lean on, and um, obviously he's a pain in the ass to play against out there. And he's been, you know, look at this last series up. Braden Point, he was the guy in the middle on the power play and scored the first goal of each of the first three games. So, offensively, but mostly in the room, too. Uh, another added voice when we lost a few of them last offseason. Uh, Joe, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for this today. No problem so much, guys. Take care. Uh, there is Joe Smith of The Athletic. It's just like the, the Lightning can't do any wrong with their moves, Sat. <laughs> Yeah, like their player acquisition. Uh, we've talked about pro scouting a lot here in Vancouver over the last number of years, and it's often been a criticism of the organization and uh, the previous front office. But what moves are the Lightning missing on right now? You know, like Nick Paul comes in, he's playing as many minutes at five on five as any other player on this roster not named Nikita Kucherov. Any other mm-hmm. forward on this roster not named Nikita Kucherov. You have Corey Perry. What a what a brilliant signing he's been for them as well. Brandon Hagel. You know, we all t- talked about the first-round picks. Oh, my God, they gave up two first-round picks. They win another Stanley Cup. You know who's not going to care? The Tampa Bay Lightning. <laughs> Lightning yes. Julian Breezebois is not going to care. I got another cup ring. That's what, that's what I care about. They haven't had first-round picks in forever. They don't need them. They, they know who they are acquiring, what they need to acquire. And I think that's... Um, that's really a a testament to their success. And it, it's one of those things, like once you have your ultimate core in place, like those five, six guys that you are really going to lean on that are going to eat up most of your salary cap, 
it should be, in theory, easier to fill out the rest of your lineup, right? We know we can count on these guys, and we just got to put the right pieces around them. But how many teams can't find those right pieces to put around their core? Well, I mean, I think the biggest part of it, too, is knowing exactly who you are. And when you know exactly who you are as a team, it becomes a lot easier to bring players in that fit what you're trying to do. And that's ultimately the biggest thing. And, you know, I see people texting in and mentioning, um, you know, that the Hagel trade was terrible and all those sort of things. Brandon Hagel wasn't brought in for them to score points. Mm -hmm. What they brought him in for was to play a very specific role for that team. A guy who's young can provide a little pop if need be, but he helps you um, on the PK. He helps you to be a guy that can play defensive matchups and stuff like that. Now, has he been as good as people thought? Hey, maybe not. Maybe he's not going to be as good. But if you're looking at Brandon Hagel's stats, that's not what he was acquired for. That's not the role he plays. It's not, and um, you know the one thing uh, that that was interesting about that that trade, and I mentioned it at the time. You know, they do get two fourth rounders back from Chicago, and yeah, those are ultimately lottery tickets. But they're trying to keep uh, lottery tickets later on in the draft, and they've hit well uh, later on in the draft with guys like uh, Anthony Cirelli and and obviously Braden Point and some others. So, it, you know, it's just such a well-run organization, and that's why they are the top of the league and have been for consecutive years running. But ultimately the the lesson you're learning from, from the lightning this year is um, yes, you need to be able to control play at five on five and you've got to, you've got to win on in those areas of the game. But when it comes to the playoffs, are you and are, is your entire team willing to go that extra mile, especially in this Eastern conference set where there's so little difference between some of these juggernaut teams. We know the Leafs are talented as much as we chirp them for not being able to get over the hump. Nobody is denying the talent that they have on that team. This Florida team also underachieving a little bit, but ultimately seeing Stamkos jump in front of shots and everything that was going on with this lightning team, they're just willing to go that extra mile and they know what it takes to win. I, I hate that I've become that guy now, but it, it's hard not to have that as a reason for why Tampa is going to their sixth Eastern Conference final in the last eight years when you're seeing it year over year happen. Well, the other thing they ha- they have that's really underrated, and it's something we've talked a lot about, defending in your own zone. Their defensemen know how to defend in their own zone. A lot of their forwards know how to defend in their own zone. That's becoming a bit of a lost art. And yep. to Joe's point, one of the things they did well, as much as, yeah, they're getting hemmed in at times, and yes, the shot, shot differential was definitely Florida's favor, and they had more chances as well. It wasn't like it was onslaught after onslaught of odd man rushing two-on-one. They weren't giving that stuff away. It was kind of similar to how Vancouver played Vegas, but obviously um, Tampa did better than what Vancouver did because they went up lost in seven games, and you saw how much different it was for Tampa because of the high-end talent they have. But it was kind of in that regard. Ta- Vegas wasn't getting odd-man chance after odd-man chance. It was just a lot of zone-time pressure, but the Canucks did a really good job of defending, generally speaking. Tampa does that at, at like a next-level rate. They're so good at defending their own zone. And when I'm looking at teams, like, for instance, this is where people get caught up a lot. Like, a guy like Eric Branson oftentimes gets brought up. And to his credit, he played well this year in Calgary for the role he had. 
But one of the reasons I was always skeptical of him in the postseason is he was never good at defending in his own zone. In the regular season, I think on a third pair, you can shelter him and he can be fine, provide some toughness and, and all that sort of stuff. In the postseason, I'm hiding the crap out of that guy. He does not know how to defend well in his own zone. Yeah. It's a big, big problem. So just because you're big and physical doesn't mean you're good at defending in your own zone. So if I'm looking at targeting certain players, I really want to target guys that understand how to defend in their own zone. Yeah, you may not be the best puck mover. Yeah, you may you know, not be great at certain things. But I can live with you being somebody who knows how to defend in the postseason. I can rely on you in the postseason when the game changes that you know exactly what to do. You know how to box a guy out. You know where to have your stick. You understand the position you need to be in. You don't get too far from your check. All those sort of things matter in the postseason. And so many guys you see on Calgary, for instance, they're not good at defending in their own zone. I don't care what the what the analytics say about scoring chances and all that sort of stuff. When the game changes in the playoffs, do you know how to defend in your own zone? And guys who can't get exposed. How many pucks uh, do, even if it's not like a full-on block, like nothing gets through clean to Tampa's net, it seems like. You know, their sticks are always in the right place, always clogging up passing lanes, always clogging up shooting lanes. And when there is that breakdown, you've got the best goalie on the planet uh, to bail you out as well. Uh, a lot of people uh, get mad about the Brandon Hagel comment. He I was, think it's just Tyler on the island that's mad, yeah, to be honest. He was a first-line player in Chicago. He's playing third-line minutes now in, in Tampa Bay. I mean, I, I don't know if we should have expected... Uh, a ton of goals, yeah, maybe a little bit more offense, but uh, after all, he is Brandon Hagel, and Tampa Bay knew exactly what they were acquiring him for. And, you know, Tampa's one of those teams, it's also like when it comes to giving up draft capital, they probably know, hey, in the offseason we're going to have to move somebody and we'll recoup some draft capital there uh, when we make some of those trades to free up some space on our salary cap situation. Now, I will say, the one thing I will say in general, like, we don't know the ultimate decision on the Brandon Hagel trade, and not everything Tampa's done has been perfect. They've made mistakes. Every team makes mistakes. I mean, go through the draft record. They've had busts, high picks that were busts. Slater Cuckoo, Brett Connolly, for instance, right? They drafted Tony D'Angelo, got rid of him, got nothing for him. There's been a lot of guys they've drafted that haven't been good high that is in the draft too but generally speaking they don't make a lot of mistakes they are able to find guys and the best the one reason why they find guys is to have a very good idea of what they want what they are and when you are well attuned in that regard it makes it easier for you to make better decisions because you're not going to go after guys that you know for sure won't be fits for you. If you if you get rid of, say, 20% of the options because you know for a fact they won't be fits for you that means you're less likely to make mistakes. Um a lot of uh, reaction coming into the Dunbar Lumber t- text line. Tampa Bay beats two teams that haven't made it out of the first round in how many years, and you fall in love with them. Uh, they've also won two cups in a row, uh, Texter, in case you've forgotten. Um, it, it, look, they're a really good team, and and one Texter does no income tax. Glenn and Richmond, no income tax in Florida is a key contributor as well, allows for hometown discount deals. Look, that that is a factor. Um, look at Tampa's uh, salary cap picture, and there are very few, very few issues. You know, like there's not, there's not one contract you really look at and be like, "Oof, that one's tough to overcome." Like they've spent very efficiently. Some of that is guys have been willing because they know it's a good team and it's a great area. It's a great place to play. They have been willing to take less money. You know, Victor Hedman at less than $8 million is an absolute steal. 
Uh, all those guys, Sergachev, Cernak, taking less money than they probably could have gotten elsewhere, uh, especially if they were open to signing offer sheets. But on both of those players, there was no chance. You talk to their agents, there was no chance. Those guys were even entertaining the idea of an offer sheet to go somewhere else. It was just, look, I'll take whatever money I'm going to get in Tampa, and that's and that's it. You know, They didn't want to even entertain going elsewhere. So, yes, being in Florida, having no state income tax, and having a Stanley Cup contending team does factor into them getting discounts on the salary cap. I have no I have no doubts about that, but they've they've utilized it well at the same time. Well, they have, and the biggest reason why they're still okay salary cap wise is that they have nobody making more than 9.5 million per season. Their three highest paid players make 9.5, 9.5 and 9.5. That's Vasilevsky, Braden Point next season, and Nikita Kucherov. Stamkos is at 8.5. Look at Toronto, for instance. 11.6 for Matthews, 11 for, for Tavares, and 11, and almost 11 for Mitch, uh, for, for, um, Marner. Mitch Marner. So just looking at those three players, right there, they're playing about 4 $5 million more to their top three guys than what Toronto is. And that's a $5 million player. That's, that's a difference for their squad for, versus Toronto. A um, couple of texters saying uh, there have been agents that have uh, stated the income tax argument is overblown. There are ways to avoid being taxed. 100%. Uh, it is a little bit overblown, but cost of living uh, does factor in for players wherever they are playing as well. Um, you know, living in Vancouver, living in uh, New York can be more expensive. Living in Toronto, whatever it might be. And uh, those those factors do play a part in some of the contract negotiations that uh, happen around the league. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw, we are Canuck Central. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Just the one game going on tonight, Sat. We'll uh, preview uh, the Battle of Alberta a little bit later on in the show and get you set for tomorrow's games. But Colorado, St. Louis, the Blues are massive underdogs in this one and why wouldn't they be paying over three dollars on the money line to keep this series alive of course this one in denver for game five i don't know too many people that are walking up to the ticket window with the st louis blues on their mind yeah i don't feel good about it (laughs) so uh, (laughs) it's kind of like the same feeling i had last night remember we were talking about the uh flames and oilers game and yeah i was wrong about that one yep and i was like i don't know like i know what you're saying dan all the logic kind of adds up and now the difference here being st louis does get to go uh back home on home ice um no they don't yeah no, they don't. Never mind. This game is called right. Yeah, never mind. Like they're they're getting waxed. Never mind. Yeah, exactly. No, like I, I I don't like I don't like the chances. Just like Calgary, exactly like Calgary. I don't like their chances. Okay, so if you like Colorado so much, um, play... I don't like him so much. I don't like the Blues. <laughs> uh, okay, but for this game, uh, Colorado Avalanche total goals over under including overtime uh, would be at four. And you're getting a little bit of juice. Over four goals for the Colorado Avalanche. Do you like that play for tonight? It's a tough one. That's a tough one. I like it. I think. All right. Yeah. You take it. I don't know. I, I'm kind of I'm the kind of the kind of the coward fence sitter here today. Coward. I'm <laughs> being a coward. I'll give you a game prop. Like I'll, I'll give you like a player to do something. All but right. I, I don't like the teams. I don't. I don't like it. 
Uh, so I, I'd be taking that. Uh, over total goals for the Colorado Avalanche tonight. Uh, it's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. We are Canuck Central.